The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Normally we'll go through a book of the Bible, usually something from the New Testament, uh, sentence by sentence, a paragraph at a time, and um, so we've been doing that for years. Then we had a unique opportunity to go through Old Testament portion of Scripture, Genesis 1 through 3. We we, uh, finished that study. And now we're going to be looking at a few pertinent topics of the day that are relevant of what's going on in our world, in our life, on a practical level, and then look to Scripture and see what Scripture has to say about that issue. So uh, we'll do that for a few weeks, and I'm open to suggestions. And people have already given some wonderful suggestions about what does the Bible say about this? And so far we talked about the origin of communion, that's relevant, and Passover, Then we talked about how to listen to a sermon. We spent two weeks on that. That was practical. Got a lot of good feedback on that. And then today we look at the sanctity of life, which is definitely relevant uh, to many lives and also what's going on in our world today. Whether you read the news or not, um, when I say the sanctity of life, look at there on your handout there. Got 15 points on the sanctity of life. We'll get to that in a second. But what I mean by the sanctity of life, we're going to focus in on not so much abortion, but the opposite of abortion, what God thinks about life in the womb and also babies, children. So we'll emphasize what scripture says, but it's directly related to abortion. It's under the big umbrella of sanctity of life because sanctity of life encompasses more things than just abortion. The sanctity of life represents God's view of human life, really. And that's clearly stated in the scripture. So when you're talking about the sanctity of life, you would talk about, yes, abortion. And what does God think about life and babies in the womb? Uh, it could be in reference to older folks and this whole issue and debate of euthanasia and, um, and so many other things that are relevant. Uh, how we view people who are different than us or someone who was born blind or a baby that is born without uh, a hand or an arm or other different physical deformities or other challenges, whether it's Down syndrome and so many other things. What is the biblical view? Well, the biblical view is very different than many in the world who look down on and think that anything that's different has less value and isn't as sacred and therefore actually can be eliminated through abortion. That's just a prominent view in the world. That is the antithesis of what we're going to see, what the Bible has to say about human life. What's ironic, in the world today, at least in America, a dominant secular view, if you watch the news at all and hear people talk, they've turned everything on its head from God's point of view because so many in the world have it wrong. They devalue human life, which came from God as a sacred gift, and they lower the importance and the sanctity of human life while at this other other side, raising other things to a level above the sacredness of human life, whether it's the grass in your backyard, Mother Earth, the dirt, the clouds, the air we breathe, animal life. God created all those, by the way, and he put it in perspective. Clearly said that human life was the apex of his creation and unique over and above all other parts of his creation. 
So we're going to be looking at a balanced biblical view today. Hopefully it helps you and informs you. But getting back to this issue specifically regarding the sanctity of life and life in the womb and abortion, there have been some significant issues that have arisen quite recently. And maybe some of you are informed and been following these issues in the news, and maybe some of you have not. So just to establish some groundwork here for us, just basic reminders United States of America since 1973, January 22nd, 1973, the Supreme Court of the United States, there's nine members on the Supreme Court, issued a ruling, seven to two, majority rules, and these seven Supreme Court justices in America back in 1973 decreed for the first time that it was okay to take the life of a baby that was inside the womb with legal protection. That was really controversial and devastating. It's been 46 years now, Roe v. Wade, we call it, that decision. 46 years since that time, legally in America, they estimate anywhere from 55 million to 62 million babies, those in the womb, have been aborted or we would say that have been killed in the womb, 61 to 62 million. That, that number is staggering. We don't think of it enough. We don't talk about it enough. We don't pray about it enough. It's staggering. It is sobering. It's mind-boggling, but it's a reality. It's frightening, actually. 62 million babies slaughtered is how I would say it. 195 countries in the world today, about 195. 60 million babies aborted in America. If you took all 60 million of those babies out of the 195 current countries we have in the world today, they would comprise the 21st largest nation in the world, meaning over 170 other countries that currently exist in the world have less of a population than 60 million. 60 million babies killed by far way more than people who have been killed in all the wars we've had in this last 100 years, which includes World War I and World War II. Actually, it, it represents uh, the death of more than all the wars we've had in world history. That's how staggering that number is. And it's on average about a million babies a year right now in America, and it's, it's not stopping so those are just some reminders, some realistic uh, reminders for us to be thinking of. Uh, in 1973, when the case, actually the case went to court, the suit was filed in about 1970 by, we don't hear much about her. Her name was protected during the case that lasted for three years from 1970 to 1973, and it was a young woman who was 21 years old who lived in Texas, she became pregnant and she didn't want the baby. So she first feigned rape, said she was raped, and thought in Texas, because it was abortion was against the law in Texas in 1970, and she was given advice by friends, just, well, say you got raped, and turns out she was lying, and she admitted later that she was lying, so that didn't work. And so uh, then she got advice from two lawyers in Texas, uh, who used her, really, as a pawn to file a suit 
against the state of Texas and the attorney general at that time in Dallas, his name ended in, his last name was Wade. That's where we get Roe versus Wade. So Wade was representing the state of Texas. Wade was representing state law and federal law that abortion was murder up at that point. Uh, her name was Norma McCorvey, but she went by Jane Roe. Sometimes they make up names, Roe, Doe, to protect a plaintiff or somebody involved in a case. And she went by Jane Roe. So it was Roe versus Wade. And she filed suit in against the state of Texas trying to overturn the abortion law so that she can get an abortion with this most recent pregnancy. And the court went to Texas, and a three-panel judge ruled in her favor unanimously in probably late 1970, I think it was. And then eventually it went to the Supreme Court where it was uh, brought and debated once again, and then that's when the Supreme Court uh, ruled in her favor 7-2, to two, and then it became law. And the judges at that time in the Supreme Court, in their, they wrote summary reports of their, their rendering, both pro and con, and the seven justices' summary report based it on a clause in the 14th Amendment of the United States regarding her privacy, and her freedom, her liberty, it was her right to kill the baby inside of her, they ruled. And, but they didn't say it was abortion was okay during the entire nine months of pregnancy. They, they somewhat put limits on it that uh, she could abort up to fetal viability. In other words, up to a point in the womb where if once the baby could live outside the womb, even with assistance, then probably need to reconsider in other words what they were saying was she could have an abortion up to 23 to 24 weeks of pregnancy which amounts to about six months pregnant so a woman could have an abortion being up to six months pregnant that's where the court landed and that was 46 years ago well today january on the anniversary the 46th anniversary of roe v wade in new york the governor of new york signed a bill here in New York, in the United States of America, extending abortion even further to the point that now in New York it is signed law that a woman can abort a baby during the entire nine months, well beyond viability of that six-month threshold. So a nine-month-old baby inside the womb can now be legally aborted. The doctors are protected. The mom is protected. As a matter of fact, the law goes so far as that even during the process of the abortion, if the baby is born at nine months old and survives the abortion and is, is born alive. The New York law allows the doctors, the mom, to kill the baby after it is born. And this is now infanticide. This is the murder of babies. There's no way to dispute that. So that's been a huge dialogue going on since January 22nd here in our country and then just a few weeks later uh, legislation was being introduced in the state of virginia and that hit national headlines and the governor of virginia spoke out about it and he was for it and he's a pediatrician supposed to be protecting babies and he's for this law which is very similar and equivalent to the new york law which says that a, a mother can abort the baby through the entire nine months of pregnancy, even during the birthing process. And then the governor went on to explain how it works and that in the event that the baby was being uh, aborted at the time of birth and if the baby was born before it was aborted and it was still alive, then the doctors would, or whoever it was, would comfort it 
while the doctors confer with the mom whether they want to kill it or keep it alive. And the pediatrician, the governor of Virginia, was calling it the child, the child. If the child is born inadvertently, prematurely, and if the child is born uh, and survives the abortion process, then the child will be comforted, the child will be resuscitated if necessary, and then the doctors will confer with the mom what she wants to do with the child. He kept using the word child. He blew it. He's supposed to be saying fetus. And that sparked an outrage. Anyway, so that if you haven't watched the news, that's what's going on. So we are now have reached a point beyond six months. Now it's law in several states uh, moving that way here in the United States of America that you can literally kill a baby at the point of birth at nine months. And even if it is born, you can still kill it. That's infanticide. People use the word Nazi uh, as a term and a term of derision when they get in arguments with people or when they want to say things uh, when they can't win the debate and you just call the other person a Nazi because you can't think of how to outdo their argument. Well, the idea that you can allow a baby to be born and then kill it on the birthing table actually does make you a Nazi by definition because that's what Nazis did. Nazis murdered innocent people. That's a Nazi. So that, that's the level we have reached here in America. And it's, it's been gradual, uh, but it's been very discouraging you're watching the news but god is in control and that's what i want to look at today is search the scriptures what does god have to say about all these issues to encourage our hearts and give us perspective kind of interesting all these people that are pro-abortion there are actually politicians getting on tv and whatever supporting this idea and defending and trying to rationalize and justify why this is okay why the new york law is okay why the virginia law would be okay why the new vermont law being proposed would be okay in 17 other states considering this law that A baby can be killed up to nine months in the womb, and then even if it's born during the process and still alive after birth can be killed, and they're defending this with a passion. And it really does. It's revealing their heart. It's revealing their thinking. It's revealing their perspective of God and of life, and so that's what we want to do. And it's almost to the letter, these people who are radically pro-abortion to the point of, that I just described, that you can even kill a baby after it's born. Ironically, most of those people are anti-capital punishment and anti-death penalty for the most severe convicted murderers. It's amazing. You talk about upside-down, twisted, backward thinking. This is no surprise to God. Here's what God said in 700 B.C. in the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, when God is telling Isaiah and giving him a diagnosis of where they were in the world today, particularly in Jerusalem, which was supposed to be God's holy city where they had all divine revelation. It was the capital religious city of the world. It's where God's prophets were. And yet they'd done the same thing. They'd turned morality and God's truth on its head and they were living absolutely backward in terms of their ethics and everything else. And so that's why God announced and pronounced curses on them. Whoa, whoa. He kept saying, whoa. And here's one thing that he specifically said, woe to those in the community. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That's what they were doing. And he's talking to the rulers, the judges, the civic leaders, the religious leaders, those in authority, those who make the rules, who make the laws, who twist the laws, who apply the laws, who fail to protect from legitimate laws. That's who he's talking to. It's the powers that be. And that's what we're seeing here in America currently. It is the powers that be 
that are carrying out these most horrific, heinous ideas of legislation that we're seeing thrust upon us. And as Christians, we were confronted with during the time of election that where Planned Parenthood was exposed, or they're just an abortion mill, Planned Parenthood, that's the truth. And they're, they're getting taxpayer money. They're getting your money and my money to do their dirty deed. That's not right. So God says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who substitute darkness for light and like for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So that's God's perspective. We've gotten to a point where I think, wow, when in history has anybody... Uh, a political leader or people in authority who actually advocated the death and the slaughter of little babies that have been born. Oh, wait. Yeah, the Bible talks. Remember Pharaoh in the days of Moses? Who decreed as the leader and king slaughter the babies alive. We know God's perspective on that. God's already ruled on this. Fast forward from Pharaoh 1400 years to the days of Jesus. Remember Herod? Slaughter the babies when they're alive, we know God's perspective on that as well. So this actually really isn't anything new. Hitler said the same thing. If it's a Jew, if it's not like us, slaughter the baby alive. So with that, let's go to our outline and just want to share. Through, we'll go through these quickly because they're basic truths. They're summary truths. Uh, the there's a lot of different ways you could preach a sermon on abortion. I've done a couple different ones in the past. So I wanted to do something a little different. And, and this one, I wanted to fully inform our worldview, a complete, balanced, fully orbed perspective and worldview on the sanctity of life and a worldview that is complete, almost exhaustive from a biblical point of view on all the pertinent issues that are related to the, in this debate and dialogue about abortion what should a christian think exhaustively about the abortion issue according to the bible and that's that's what's represented right here so we're going to breeze through this this is for christians these are this is for believers this is those of you who are born again you're christians you have the spirit of god living in you and the spirit of god helps you understand scripture and apply scripture to your life confirms truth in your heart god's convictions become your convictions you love God's truth. You love the word of God. This is for you. Don't be surprised if you if you tried to take this and talk to one of your relatives or coworkers who's not a Christian. And you start walking through these things and they shoot them all down or maybe they get a little angry or they laugh in your face or mock you. They don't have the ability to believe these truths. These are received spiritually, supernaturally, 1 Corinthians 2 says, by the Spirit of God for the Christian. So be wise. First, apply these truths to yourself and your own thinking to make sure you as a Christian have the right perspective on the sanctity of life, especially this very difficult issue of abortion, because even a lot of Christians don't have the right thinking about abortion. Some I've talked to some Christians who think, well, yeah, abortion, you can't. You're going to preach on that. You can't talk. You can't preach on that. Pastor Cliff, hey, that's not a religious issue. That's not a church issue. That's not a theology. That's a political issue. That's a voting issue. There are Christians who believe that there are actually Christians who at least profess to be Christians who believe abortion is okay. Well, if it's in the first month or the first couple months or the first eight months or the first nine months, if the if the mom's life is in jeopardy. Is that a biblical perspective? 
I don't think so. I remember uh, when I was a pastor at a previous church, there was this dear saint who grew up in a secular, pagan, unbelieving home, became a Christian in college, went to San Jose State, graduated San Jose State, uh, joined the church, very involved in the church, sweet, sincere believer. And I was talking to her, and she, she be- for whatever reason, we got on abortion, and she said she believed in abortion. And I said, well, I thought you were a Christian. Well, I am. I thought you believed what the Bible said. Well, I do. Well, why do you believe in abortion? Well, because that's what I've always believed. Oh, yeah, that's how I was raised. That's what my mom taught me. Oh, well, when did you get saved? When I was a freshman in college. Oh, where'd you go to college? Oh, over here locally. And all I heard for four years at the secular college was that abortion was okay. And it was right. I was like, oh. Has anybody ever talked to you from a biblical point of view? Nope. That's what you're for, Pastor Cliff. I was like, okay. So I, I spent like just 20 minutes in my office sharing these scriptures. And she was, her eyes were as big as saucers. She'd never even seen these truths. She was convicted. She was saddened. She was heartbroken. Broken. She was liberated. She was excited. And when we were done, she said, you know what? I don't believe in abortion anymore. Wow. So that was the sweet, sensitive evidence of a true child of God being persuaded simply with the truth of Scripture. I wasn't wasting my time on the nine stupidest arguments of pro-abortion people. It was, well, here's what the, here, let's just look at a couple of verses in the Bible. See what God thinks. And that was good enough for her. So that's the idea here. I just want to encourage your hearts. Let's look to Scripture. Uh, So let's do it. What does the Bible have to say about the sanctity of life and particularly this issue of abortion? We heard from Psalm 139 a little earlier, just an amazing and beautiful psalm, very descriptive and detailed of really God describing and revealing how uh, a baby is being developed by God the Creator inside that womb. Human beings, the birth process, pregnancy is not a byproduct and result of meaningless, hapless evolution. It's a very specific, deliberate process of the creator. God is creator, crafting human life, sacred, beautiful human life, even inside the womb. Psalm 139 declares, you formed, you God, you God, the creator, you formed my inward parts. You made me, you you covered me in my mother's womb, me. While I'm in my mother's womb, I'm a person. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's awesome. Every baby in the womb is being fearfully and wonderfully constructed by God, the creator. Let's go ahead and look at these 15 points to substantiate that main truth. Number one uh, is simply that God is the creator. All life comes from him. Genesis 1.1. We went through Genesis. In the beginning was the in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All life came from God. This is basic, but it's foundational to our worldview as Christians because every other worldview doesn't believe this, or at least they don't believe it consistently. Uh, Atheists, secularists, agnostics, they don't believe this. They don't believe that God exists, he's creator, and all life comes from him. The dominant view in America and the world today that reigns supreme, and they call it science, is evolution. And it is a system of thought that is completely anti-God or atheistic or atheistic or apart from God. There is no God. Life doesn't come from God. Life just poof came out of nowhere. Can't be explained. But scripture is clear. 
we as Christians know that God is creator and all life comes from him. Acts chapter 17, Paul was talking to maybe some uh, secularists, some maybe some atheists thrown in there and some agnostics, the Greeks, who didn't have divine revelation. He's debating with them. He's talking to them. He's answering their questions. He's evangelizing. He's giving them theology in terms they can understand. He lets them know, yeah, you don't believe in my God, but just so you know, the God I believe in is the one that created you. You came from the God I know that you don't believe in. Just so you know, and then Paul describes this wonderful God culminating in calling him Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and one important statement there Paul made in Acts 17, 25, is he himself, God, gives everyone life and breath. What does a baby have inside the womb? It has life. It has breath. It's the definition of life from God's point of view. That's the definition of a person from God's point of view. God is the creator and all life comes from him. Number two. When does life begin? This is also a part of that big debate where they try to debate when life begins. That's not really the debate anymore uh, because if you're signing laws in the state of New York and soon in Vermont and other states that you can abort a baby up to the day before the due date, nine months, you're no longer debating as they used to to justify abortion saying, well, when does life begin? Uh, we know life is viable way beyond nine months in the womb even be uh, even before 24 weeks in the womb since that time in 1973 babies have been born prior as early as almost 20 and 21 weeks there's an 11 year old amelia alive today she's an example born at just barely 20 weeks and survived and is healthy and happy today the Bible says that life begins at conception. Psalm 51, verse 5, David is given the Spirit of God to give this revelation about when he came into existence. It's very specific in that verse in the Hebrew text. He says, in sin, my mother conceived me. And what he means by that is he acknowledges, you know what? I'm sinful. I'm wicked. I just committed adultery. <clears throat> I just committed murder. God's convicted me. Forgive me, God. I didn't just become a sinner. Actually, I was a sinner while in. He uses the, the phrase, I was a sinner at birth. And then he even goes back even further and he says, I was a sinner at conception. And there's God letting us know that life begins at conception. Number three, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. All human beings are made in God's image. Life begins at conception. So that as soon as conception takes place, that life that, by the way, has 100% of the DNA it needs at conception and from that point it just grows and matures and becomes the baby and eventually the adult that it will be so at conception that little life to develop is already made in god's image god has determined his image his imprint is on that baby in the womb from the very time of conception and all throughout the whole nine-month process until it is born bearing the very image of god we talked about already in genesis in our study of how important the, the image of God is what it means that every human being sitting here, whether you know Jesus Christ personally or not, you are, whether you believe in God or not, God made you in his image. You, you are accountable to him. He is your creator. He could be your savior. He is your judge. He's my creator. We reflect his image. I have characteristics and attributes of, like God that I got from God. I have a conscience because of God. I have morality and ethics because of God. I'm a person because of 
God. These things are not true of animals, plants, and inanimate objects. The very fingerprint of God is engraven upon the conscience, the soul, the heart, the spirit, the very person of every human being. And it happens at conception, and it's true in the womb. And God says that image that I have put in every single human soul is sacred, and it is to be protected. If it is uh, defaced, if it is ruined, if it is killed, there are consequences for that. And God shows us in Scripture what the consequences are. No one human being has the right to take the life of another human being who has been made in God's image. Every human being is sacred. Every human being from God's point of view. So that baby in the womb is absolutely sacred. Number four. The life in the womb is a person. Life begins at conception, and from that point on, as it develops, that is considered a human being, a person made in God's image who is sacred, and that's how God perceives it. If you look at Exodus, let me just read Exodus 21. God gives the Ten Commandments, and then he gives practical corollaries regarding law from God's point of view in all kinds of very different and practical areas. And listen to Exodus 21. 22 and following if two men are fighting that's what men do sometimes and they're struggling if men struggle with each other and they and in the middle of their fight they strike a woman with child so maybe this it's a wife and she's pregnant and her husband gets into a struggle a fight with another man and she's there present and they're in close proximity and they're fighting all over the place and they bump into the pregnant wife Uh, my new american standard says if they strike or hit a woman with child in their struggle, a woman with child, that means a pregnant woman, a woman with child, not with a fetus, with child, because that's what the Hebrew word means, is recognized by God's point of view of life. There's a baby in her womb. If the pregnant woman is hit or struck to the point that she gives birth prematurely, yet there's no injury, And what that means is no injury to the mom or the baby. Yet there is no injury. Then the man who hit her, he shall surely be fined. See, he's already he's being penalized because of the premature birth. As the woman's husband may demand of him and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, and that means to the mom and the baby. Then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life. In other words, God issued the death penalty if a pregnant mother was injured and her baby was injured. Do you know that here in America today we have those laws? In the state of New York, on their books, up to this day, that if you killed a woman and she was pregnant, you would get charged with two homicides, murdering her and the baby in her womb. That's in keeping with Exodus 21 and God's point of view. So the life in a womb is a person. Number five, every pregnancy is the work of God. A couple of verses I want to look at in Genesis. Every pregnancy is the work of God. So pro-abortion people, the arguments they use is, oh, you know, it was a mistaken pregnancy. It was an accident. Or the most famous phrase is an unwanted pregnancy. Well, the question is, well, who doesn't want it? And who has the right and the authority to end it? What is an un- unwanted pregnancy? And is there such a thing as an unwanted pregnancy that deserves to be terminated prematurely? Not in the Bible. 
There's actually a lot of embarrassing pregnancies and conceptions in the Bible that are shameful. And they were conceived in adultery and deception and sin. Like Judah, one of the 12 uh, sons of uh, Jacob. Who got into an illegitimate relationship with his daughter-in-law and she became pregnant. That's an unwanted pregnancy by terms today. And lo and behold, God protected the life of that child. And that child ends up in the very genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go to the genealogy in Matthew 1 and Luke 3 of genealogy and look at the genealogy and his history and his lineage of the people and the women and the men in that genealogy, it is despicable. You go through with the red, whoa, there's another unwanted pregnancy and he was a joke and he was a loser. and Boy, she was sinful and wicked. Snuffed them all out. There's no Jesus. Jesus came from sinners because Jesus came for sinners. It's the good news. So from God's point of view, there is no unwanted pregnancy. But point being, every pregnancy is a work of God. And no better place to see this than Genesis chapter 4. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned? We talked about that. That was recent. And then God cursed Adam and Eve, but he told them, if you disobey, you're going to die. Boom, snuff you out. So Eve eats the persimmon or whatever it was in the hebrew text and she should have died that day we think how come she didn't die snuffed out well because god is gracious god forgives sinners god shows mercy god has patience god is amazing so he did that to eve gave her grace and i think forgave her he he killed somebody else in her place an animal slaughtered an animal shed blood on her behalf. And then he blessed her and said, you know what, Eve, I told you, you know, you're going to die the day that you ate, but I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to be merciful. I slaughtered. I killed somebody else in, in substitute of you looking toward the Messiah that I talked about someday. And not only are you going to live, Eve, you're going to be able to have babies. And not only are you going to be able to have babies, you are going to be named Eve, which means the mother of all the living, the mother of life. The mother of life. That's God's point of view of being able to conceive, become pregnant, give birth. And so this registers with Eve. She is so thrilled. She is so thankful. She is so excited, I think, because she was able to bypass this immediate penalty of death. And then Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now the man, Adam, had relations with his wife. Literally, Adam knew his wife, knew his wife intimately, physically, sexually, knew them, had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived. She became pregnant. And she gave birth to Cain. So she's pregnant in what, like all mothers. She is excited about her pregnancy. She's excited about the baby. Little did she know at the time that Cain was cursed. Cain would be evil. Cain would become a murderer. Yet while Cain is in the womb, she's thankful. She is excited. She knows this is the work of God. This isn't chance. This isn't evolution. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't unwanted. This is what she said. She said, I have, she named the boy Cain and she said, I have gotten a man child. I got a baby boy with the help of Yahweh. So she knew pregnancy was the work of God. And she personalized it and that was legitimate. That is the perspective of the Bible. There are no unwanted pregnancies. Every conception, every pregnancy is a direct intervention by Almighty God as the creator and is to be celebrated accordingly. And that's what she did about Cain. Then uh, Cain and Abel are born. And then Cain murders Abel. There's sadness there. And then God 
gives her another child. Verse 25 of Genesis 4, Adam had relations with his wife again, Eve, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. And listen to what she said. God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel. That was Eve's perspective. God is the giver of life. God is the one who allows me to conceive and become pregnant. That is the biblical point of view. That's our worldview. That's reality. Every pregnancy is the work of God. And that's why this phrase is repeated all throughout the the Old Testament in particular, that this woman was barren like when Isaac married Rebecca. And Isaac was 40 years old when he got married to Rebecca and he loved her and they couldn't have a baby. She was barren. And they wanted children. You know, that went on for 20 years. And scripture says in Genesis that Isaac, he prayed to the Lord and he asked, God, open her womb, give life to my wife. And it says that God heard his prayer. And then Rebecca conceived. So clearly scripture says that uh, conception is the very work of almighty God. Every work is a pregnancy of God. Every time a woman becomes pregnant, the scripture says, God opened the womb, God opened the womb, God opened the womb. He does it providentially. He does it through the processes he set in place, through the ability to perpetuate the race, but it is the work of God ultimately. Number six, every life is immortal. Why is this important? Well, we're not just slaughtering uh, fetuses and throwing them in the trash can. And Well, that's the end of that story. Getting sucked down uh, the tubes into the garbage disposal, the local abortion clinic, and then those babies are never to be heard of again. They're, those are living souls. Those are people. Yeah, maybe you're snuffing out the physical existence. But human beings, we can't kill the soul and the spirit that's inside that physical body. When God creates a soul, that soul lives forever. When God creates a being, their inside, their their spirit and their soul, they go on to an existence forever. That's So all human beings, once they're conceived and born, they are immortal. We're all immortal. In other words, we will live forever, whether you... Die as an unbeliever or believer, you will live forever. You die physically in this life, your spirit continues to live. You remain conscious. You either go to uh, the presence of God when you die or banished into outer darkness away from God's presence, and you are conscious and you are in torment. But every human being ever conceived and in the womb at any time, whether they're snuffed out or not, continues on with a life created by God. That's all over the scripture. I want to read John 5 because listen to this. Um, In John chapter 5, Jesus is talking about his role as the son of God and how the father has sent him. And the father has appointed Jesus to be the judge. So Jesus is explaining this. I know your Old Testament says that God is the judge. Well, Yahweh is the judge. I'm the judge. I'm Yahweh. And so that's Jesus' discussion here. And he's talking about uh, when people will be judged, life and death. Uh, chapter 5, verse 21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son of Man also gives life to whom he wishes. So Jesus is the giver of life. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus is the judge. Uh, Going on to verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he has given He gave to the son also to have life in himself. He gave him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. Do not marvel at this verse 28. An hour is coming in the future in which all who are in the tombs, all who have died, all who have been killed, all who lost their physical life in this life 
they still live as a soul and a spirit. But in the future, all who have been killed, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice, the voice of Jesus, the judge, and they will come forth. They will come forth through resurrection. Those who did the good deeds, that's believing in God and in Christ, to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Every human being is immortal. Every person, once they die in this life, they go into a conscious existence outside of this life, either in bliss or in torment. And in the future, every human being is going to be raised by Jesus Christ and their soul is going to be reunited with an eternal resurrection body that lasts forever. And how glorious it is going to be when those 60 million babies, innocent babies, will someday get their resurrection body by the Lord Jesus Christ. They exist now. They are in bliss. They're in Abraham's bosom. They are in paradise. They are with Jesus. They are in glory. They are in no pain. Those babies that have all been killed. It's a beautiful thing that scripture paints. And someday they're going to get a new resurrection body. Well, what will babies look like when they come back resurrected? I mean, when we're in heaven and we all have our resurrected bodies and I have the resurrection body of a 32-year-old man that's perfect. Is that baby that died going to be a little baby resurrection body and they have to crawl around heaven for all eternity? No, because they can fly to also. No, I don't know. But it's fascinating to think about. So what I determined, this is my thought. This is Cliffology or McManusology. This is not in the Bible. Okay. Uh, I think, and this is what I think today, this could be different next week, uh, that when that baby was conceived, that baby had 100% of the DNA that it needed for the rest of its life, right? And all... All that happens then is the maturation process. So God determined at conception all of its DNA so that whatever that DNA was at that time, theoretically, if it reached age 30, we already know what that baby would have looked like, its personality, everything was all there. Then I'm thinking about who is the most perfect human being? Jesus. For whatever reason, the father appointed that he would have a ministry that started at age 30 and he would die at age 33. Why is that? I don't know. That was God's plan. But age 30 to 33 is kind of, uh, the ideal culmination of the human life, physically speaking, and everything else. And that's what happened with Jesus. And then Jesus died, and then he got a resurrection body, and his resurrection body was very similar to what it looked like when he died as he interacted with his disciples, but it was a perfect body, this resurrection, supernatural, heavenly, physical body. It was ideal. And then Philippians 3 interestingly says that when Jesus comes back, he's going to transform all of our bodies into a body after the pattern or the likeness of his body so McManusology says that these babies that died early in the womb that were killed through abortion will be saved by god rescued by god and they'll be given resurrection bodies someday based on the dna that they had and they will be patterned and fashioned with a beautiful resurrection body after the pattern of jesus christ which was a full-grown matured beautiful adult that's McManusology. so they don't have to crawl around heaven forever in diapers that's just what i think but every human is immortal. You can read Revelation 6, 9, where people have been, innocent people have been slaughtered and killed, and they left the physical body immediately, but guess where they ended up? In heaven, in heaven, in the presence of God. And they are praying, God, how much longer before you avenge our blood of those who murdered us? And God says, hold on. Be patient. And that's true of these babies. Number seven, God describes life in the womb in personal terms. Uh, I, I do want to read Genesis 25 because there are several personal terms used there in Genesis 25 regarding the twins in the womb. They're not fetuses or feti. 
or protoplasm or a glob or all these impersonal terms that we are thrown our way. So this was Isaac, 40 years old. I already told you about this. Uh, Mary's Rebecca. She's barren. Isaac prays. God answered. Rebecca is, con- she conceives. And then listen to this as God describes it through scripture, how he describes the conception and the pregnancy. Verse 22, but the children, verse 22, struggled within her. So while they're in there, the twins, they are considered children from God's point of view. And she said, if it is so, why am I this way? So why, why are, boy, I'm pregnant and what's all that ruckus going on in there? And it was revealed to her, well, they're, they're brothers and they're fighting with each other. And this is just a harbinger of what it's going to be like when they're born. Mom. So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord answered. And listen to this. God said, two nations are in your womb. Two nations are in your womb. That goes beyond children. These personal terms, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body in your womb. Right now, the twins, they are considered people. They're considered nations. They're considered children. They have personalities. They're called he one people shall is stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days were to be delivered, were fulfilled. Behold, there were twins in her womb. And, oh, look at this. One was born and the other brother was coming forth. Even during the birth process, called a brother. That's the biblical position. God describes life in the womb in personal terms. Same thing with John the Baptist, who was given a name while he was in the womb. He was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb in Luke chapter 1. He was called a he. He was called a baby. Same with Jesus when he was in the womb. Number eight, every soul belongs to God. Ezekiel 18.4. Ezekiel 18, 4, you can read that whole chapter, but it says the same thing repeatedly. God says, every soul is mine. Every human being is mine. Every soul. And he uses the word soul, not body. Every soul. What makes a person a person? Well, God gives every person a soul, a spirit, life. Nefesh, we talked about that. It's not just the material, it's the immaterial being that you are. Because the outside body that you have is dying day by day and it's going to pass away and it's going to go into the grave it's going to go back to the dirt what continues on is that soul the inner being and god says every soul is mine i'm the maker of every soul and it starts at conception and god is very jealous and protective in ezekiel 18 that every soul is mine the soul of the son the soul of the mother the soul of the daughter the soul of the father they are all accountable to me so the emphasis there is on a human being is more than just a body, but a, an eternal soul. By the way, going back to when does life begin? Life begins at conception. You could actually, from a biblical point of view, say that life begins before conception uh, based on passages like Romans eight twenty-eight and following where it says and in, in uses five past tense verbs when God talks about how he saved us. It says before the foundation of the world, God, get this, foreknew you. God foreloved you. Before the foundation of the world, in eternity past, God Almighty, the creator, past tense, foreknew you. He determined that you would exist and come into existence. And that would not be denied. He loved you. He loved you before the world existed. That's what it means. He marked you out or he, he put his love upon you. He conceived of you. He willed that he would create you. It says those whom he foreknew knew or for loved he predestined 
In other words, after he foreknew you and determined you'd come into existence, he predestined you. He, he literally marked you out. He highlighted you in eternity past. He foreknew you, which means he foreloved you. Then he predestined you, past tense. Then he called you. What does that mean? When you were born into this life, he hunted you down until you got saved. Like that angel wrestling with Jacob. Called. That's what called means. Past tense. He called you. And then he goes on. And he justified you. Past tense. That's when you got saved. And then he concludes it by saying the great crescendo is. And he glorified you. Those whom he justified, he will glorify. You will be glorified. It's amazing. So God thought of you in eternity past. He determined that he loved you in eternity past. And he guarantees that you will reach the the point of glorification in eternity future. So much so guaranteed that he uses a past tense verb. If God did foreknew you in eternity past, it is guaranteed you would be glorified in eternity future. There are so many implications that it is absolutely mind boggling. Uh, your body is not your own. First Corinthians six nineteen. This is probably the main argument. Your body is not your own. God said that. God said that even those who don't believe him aren't their own. He's their master. He made them, says the book of Peter. So a woman can't kill the baby inside of her for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, the baby's not her body. It's a different body, totally independent of her body. And even if it was her body, she's not allowed to kill herself because God said so because God created her. Even if she doesn't believe it, that's the way it is. That's just reality. Your body is not your own. First Corinthians six nineteen is talking to Christians. Remember, your body's not your own. You were bought with a price. You were bought with Jesus's blood. Acts 20, you were bought with the spirit of God who lives in you. He owns you. Your body is not your own. You belong to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, God, the father who is the creator. And if you're married, by the way, you also don't belong, you don't own your own body because your spouse owns your body. Because that's what it says right there, 1 Corinthians 7, 3. The wife does not have authority over her own body. And he, we hear all the time, oh, I can do whatever I want with my body. It's my body. I can kill the fetus inside. No, you can't. It's not your body. The baby isn't. And even if it was your body, you don't have rights to do that. God, the creator, owns you. Number 10, God has special interest in the weak and the vulnerable. Uh, Jonah 4.11, amazing passage. The last verse in Jonah, the last verse in that short little prophecy where God said, you know what? I'm going to wipe out those Ninevites. I'm going to kill them all unless they repent. And Jonah's, yippee, because he hates the Ninevites. And he goes in there, repent, repent. And you know, what? You, oh, man, they repented. And they all got saved and God didn't wipe them out. And so Jonah has a temper tantrum and a pity party because he's prejudiced. And he wanted the Ninevites to get wiped out. And so he's hiding over in the corner. And then God confronts him and said, really? Really, you wanted me to wipe them all out? Seriously? The God of the universe? Well, let me, Jonah, let me tell you why I didn't wipe them all out. I didn't kill everybody in Nineveh and I showed them grace just by virtue of the fact that there are animals that live there that I don't want to kill. And also those who don't know their right hand from their left. Do you know what that is? That's a euphemism for babies. Precious little innocent life. I didn't wipe out everybody in Nineveh just because of my view of babies, young children, innocent life. I spared the whole nation as a result. The vulnerable. God has special interest in protecting vulnerable, weak, the dependent, the needy, the humble, babies, children. Matthew 19, Jesus said the same thing. Let the let the little children come. Let the little children come. Let the little do not hinder the children. Do not hinder the children. Those who hinder children hurt children, harm children, it will be better that they were 
never born. It will be better that they had a millstone around their neck thrown to the bottom of the sea in light of the wrath that they're going to face from Almighty God. If they don't change their ways, God has a special interest in the weak and vulnerable. Number 11, God will avenge the slaughter of the wicked. Those who don't value life, those who don't treat the most innocent of all, and that's children and young babies and babies in the womb as sacred, precious, deserving of our protection, and advocate their murder wholesale, face the wrath of God. Psalm 94, 20, the throne of iniquity, judges who make wicked laws. They devise evil by law, and they condemn innocent blood. And then God goes on to say how they're going to face accountability. Do not kill the innocent, says Exodus 23, because I will not justify the guilty. Hannah said, First Samuel 2, when she prayed, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. From heaven, the uh, he will thunder against them. Judgment day is coming. That's encouraging news for the innocent. Number 12, God will rescue the innocent. God says, hold on, I'll take care of this. I know it's been 46 years. I know it's been 60 million people. I'm in charge. I'm still on the throne. I'm in control. I know what I'm going to do. I know why I'm allowing this to happen. Vengeance is coming. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, Romans 12, 19. God is going to rescue the innocent. He rescues them as soon as they die and brings them into heaven. That's one way he's going to rescue them even further in the future. Number 13, God offers forgiveness for sinners. All parties involved in this whole abortion process, forgiveness is available. That's the God of grace. That's the God of mercy. So a couple has premarital sex and become pregnant out of wedlock. There's forgiveness there. They need to hear the gospel if they don't already know it. They need to profess Christ if they don't already know it. They need to entrust God with that and humble themselves. God will forgive if they do. Even if they go to the point of having an abortion, there is forgiveness there. They need the truth. They need to know what happened. They need to know God's view. They need to hear the gospel. The only means of forgiveness for what constitutes murder from God's point of view. Can a murderer be forgiven? Absolutely. Moses was a murderer. He's in heaven. David was a murderer. He's in heaven. Those who murdered Christ, some of them are in heaven because they believed. God's forgiveness is boundless. It is amazing. It's contingent, but it's amazing. For us today, that means if you're an, if you're an unbeliever, you're not a Christian, you don't know God, you have a twisted view of life in the womb, you can go to Christ. You can go to Jesus. You can go to God the Creator and ask Him, uh, open my eyes, help me to see the truth, help me to recognize you as the creator. Lord Jesus, you are the savior, you are the judge. I bow the knee to you. I humble myself, Ex expose me of my sin, save me of my sin. I believe you died on the cross for my sin as my substitute, where you poured out, God the Father poured out his wrath on you in my place. Change me, transform me, allow me to be born again, put your spirit in me, adopt me into your kingdom, make me your child. I believe by faith. God, be merciful. To me, the sinner, God will answer that prayer and make you a totally new creation. All of your sins will be forgiven as though they were once as red as scarlet. They will be as white as snow. He will forgive you and cast all of your sins as far as the east is from the west and remember your sins no more. That is the grace of a saving God that comes only through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's available today for you. So if you ever have to deal with a uh, 
an unwanted pregnancy or the prospect of abortion in your personal life, use your biblical counsel to give advice or at least pray in keeping with that will. You may have to talk to maybe some of you have already had to talk to a person that and encourage them. You know what? Uh, God knows he's sovereign. You made a mistake. You made a sin. You blew it. But that baby is a work of God. You need to keep the baby. You need to protect the baby. You need to ask God for wisdom regarding that baby. Do you keep it as your own? Do you put it up for adoption? We're going to trust God through this process. That's how the church needs to embrace this problem. That's how parents need to embrace this problem. God will be gracious and honored if we do. Norma McCorvey. Who was that? Well, Roe versus Wade. Norma McCorvey was the 21-year-old lady in 1969 that got pregnant who filed the suit against the state of Texas to undo the law so that she could conveniently have an abortion and get rid of her third baby. So they took her case. It went to the court. It lasted for three years. She did not go into trial one time. She never appeared in court. It was revealed later her name because she revealed her name. They were keeping it secret. She revealed her name later. I am Norma McCorvey. I am Jane Rowe. She had a horrible upbringing. Very difficult life. 1969 was her third pregnancy. She had the other two. One was taken away. The other was put up for adoption. Now she's on her third. She didn't want it. She didn't have a husband. The court goes on for three years. She goes to full term. She gives birth to the baby. She puts the baby up for adoption, and the baby was adopted. It's amazing. She gets convicted after becoming an alcoholic after that whole scenario for a good 10 years, totally lost life. And then in the early 1990s, the light went on. God was gracious, and she came to realize that that life in the womb was a baby. It was a person from the time of conception. And then Norma McCorvey was transformed. She was converted. She wrote two books about it around 1994-95. Amazing. And then she spent the rest of her life until just two years ago tomorrow, the age of 69, fighting for life. Fighting for life. The top of her lungs. 14. Your prayers are effective. Psalm 10:17. Keep praying about this issue. It I, you feel hopeless, man. It's just so big and dominant. And what can I do? And it's like a juggernaut and it's not slowed down here in America. You can keep praying. God answers our prayers. Oh, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble as we plead for God. God, protect our babies. Give us godly judges and justices and rulers and politicians. And the, the faithful prayer of saints is effective and changes things, says James 5. And then number 15, we can rest in this. God is in control, isn't he? God is in control. Psalm 115, verse 3, this is a good thing to go to lunch on. Our God is in the heaven and he does whatever he pleases. He is in complete control. No need to panic. Man, that just takes the weight off of my shoulders, off of your shoulders. God, you know what you're doing. We rest in you. Thank you for being in charge. Thank you for knowing what you're doing. Thank you for having to contend with all this wickedness and evil. And somehow, amazingly, Romans 8, 28, 
We know as Christians that God causes all things to work together for good for those who know him, those who love. God causes all things to work. Don't get confused and mess that up. That is not saying that all things are good. God doesn't think all things are good. God thinks abortion is bad. But the amazing thing is, is that God causes all things. He, he works all things in keeping with his perfect will. Somehow, I don't know how he does it. What could possibly that is good come from abortion and 61 million abortions since 19? I don't know. God knows. And we need to rest in him. And let's go to the father now in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together and uh, the opportunity to search the scriptures. Really just scratching uh, the depth of your word. It's amazing. Thank you for teaching us through your Holy Spirit. For those of us who know you because of a relationship with Jesus Christ. God, if you bring us into contact with people who are in this situation, um, that you would give us godly counsel, patience, prayer, the right words, encouraging scriptures, hope. Continue to protect innocent life. We ask that you would do justice here in our own country. Help our church and churches abroad to have the right perspective. We need your help. We know you're going to do the right thing, God, and I thank you that we can rest in you. And God, if there's anybody here today who doesn't know Jesus Christ personally, is not born again and not a child of yours, that you keep working on their heart with the gospel, the spirit of God, other believers, the work of prayer, that you would transform them and they would be adopted into your family. We entrust all these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.